Our scripture reading today is from Joshua chapter 5 and Judges chapter 4. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Draban's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Amen. Amen. We made it a little bit of a, of a, a family affair today. Uh, as you can see, before we get going, uh, my wife Carrie is up here with me today. Or you could say, actually, I'm up here with her, uh, if you like her better. And I know many of you do. As a matter of fact, I'm in that club. I like her a lot better than I like me. She's my favorite person in the whole world. And by the way, we did not plan it like this at all. But today is actually our 18th wedding anniversary. So, happy anniversary. As you can see, we are in the middle of this series called The Story of the Bible, where in the weeks leading up to Easter, we're looking at the big picture of the Bible, of where it came from, what the big story is all about. And the reason that I love doing this is because if you don't know the story of the Bible, you know, it's easy to dismiss the Bible stories themselves and maybe miss the big picture, a big meaning of what it's all about. So if you've been here, we know that, you know that what we've been trying to do is trying to do what those very first Christians did in the first century, those first Greek and, and Roman and, and African Christians who we know turned away from their own culture, their own idols, their own religions, uh, their own beliefs, and they put their faith in Jesus of Nazareth, not just because he was a good teacher, which he was, not just because he was a kind man or a miracle worker, which he was, but because they they, they knew that he had died and that he had come back to life. He was resurrected. And so what we've been trying to do is what they did then in the shadow, in a sense, of the resurrection which was to pick up the Jewish scriptures. Those first Christians, they picked up the Jewish scriptures, what Christians now call the the Old Testament, what they called then the law and the prophets. And we've been moving through them bit by bit, not to import some ancient culture, not to bring back Israel or a theocracy at all or some sort of sacrificial system, but we've picked them up in order to see in them what Jesus said was in them, which was him. 
which is him. And so each week we've been moving through one of the plot points of the Bible and giving them each a C name, a C word, and seeing how those plot points help us understand the big story of the Bible and the story of Jesus better. So let's ask, well, where are we today? Well, let's, let's bring you up to speed if you're new. We have moved from creation where we saw God made the world and the universe not from violence or, or power, but from love. Then we saw the catastrophe that humans brought into the world through their choice to sin. Then we saw how God launched a rescue plan to get the world back through the calling of one man named Abraham. And he said, Abraham, through you and through your family and your descendants, all the world, every people group, every ethnic background will be blessed. Then we saw last week how Abraham's family did grow into a nation of people called Israel. God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai and he forms them into a community, a community. And he says, my purpose for you is that you will be a light to the whole world, a light to every other nation around you in your day. And God said, one day through you again, I'm going to bless the whole world. So today, we're going to look now full in the face at another C word, the next plot point that actually gives a lot of people a lot of trouble, and for good reason, and that word is the word conquest. Conquest, which in the Hebrew scriptures takes place during the books of Joshua and Judges. I'll be looking at Joshua, and Carrie will look at Judges. And so in our story this week now, uh, we see that in order to fulfill the promise that that God made to Abraham centuries before this, now he tells his people, they're in the desert. He says, cross the Jordan River, go into the land of Canaan and drive out the Canaanites living there. And he says to them, this land will be your land. Right there. A lot of people have a lot of trouble. Maybe you. Maybe you're saying, Morgan, this sounds like a, like a big imperialistic crusade. And Morgan, didn't some, but not all, but didn't some Christians actually later use? This passage here is justification for the crusades. And Morgan, didn't some, but not all, but didn't some Christians use this as justification for driving out, for taking the lands of Native American peoples here in what we call the United States now? Yeah, they did. Four things about that. First, this just goes to show you once more that Jesus is our founder. Not Joshua or Jonah or David. Number two, this shows you that anyone can use anything to justify whatever they want. Listen, I could pull, man, two scriptures from anywhere. I'm about to, actually. Case study. Let's just pick the Gospels, for example. I'm going to pick two scriptures, put them together, make up a new doctrine. Here we go. Number one, verse number one. Here it is. And Judas went and hung himself. Verse 2, then Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now, it's not meant to be really a joke about mental health or suicide and more just a case study, an example. And how, number three, and why, context is so important. This kind of conquest, you'll notice right here, never happens again, even with Israel. This is a one-time activity directed to a theocracy. We're not that now. And this is never given even as a command for them again. It's only one time, and we're going to see why. And number four, by the way, if the who was their first thing is the deal breaker for you here, you should know that Canaan was actually the land where the Israelites were from originally. They've been kept out for centuries while they were slaves. In a sense, now they're returning home. 
But who got there first? That's not what this is all about. You say, well, what is it all about? Here we go. It's not a crusade at all, not even a conquest, but it's about a kind of a mission, a mission. It's the, about the mission of God in the world, which is this. God's mission, you see throughout the scriptures, is to mend a broken universe. And this is showing you right here that God isn't just going to sit back. He's not just going to abandon the world to the ruin that the people he made is bringing into it and upon it. He won't do it. And God's plan to mend the, the world and the universe began through the children of Israel. And he says, if you'll keep my covenant, that I made with you, you made with me at, at Mount Sinai. You remember that part with, with Charlton Heston, those big special effects and the lights and the sound and the big sound stage and all that good stuff. He says, if you'll keep my covenant, you'll be a light to all the other nations. You say, yeah, well, what about those other nations? Morgan, what about those people in Canaan? Why would Israel need to conquer this land to remain a light? Now, it's a tough question, but let me give you what I think is a reasonable answer in the time that I have. Imagine. Imagine a people group, multiple people groups actually, known for their extreme military brutality. Imagine people groups in a land known for their widespread oppressive sexual practices. Carrie will get to that also in her time. A people group, uh, multiple people groups who raped and pillaged as they pleased, uh, trafficked in women. Imagine people groups who had fertility cults which would culminate in widespread child sacrifice. That's who the people of Canaan were. Now, how would you stop them? In that day, without police, Come on, without international peacekeepers, uh, without UN sanctions, without media attention, undercover journalism. I mean, how would you do it? Would you just ask nicely? Hey, would you guys, would you just keep it down over there? Right? Was that what you do? Would you kindly stop raping and pillaging as you go? You know, I mean, imagine these practices spreading throughout the world as these groups gain power. How would you stop them? See, God is using Israel here one time to stop these widespread practices. So he asks him now first to destroy Jericho, sort of the capital of Canaan. But when they do this, you'll notice it's utterly different than when any other nation in that day would conquer a people. Because unlike other nations who invaded other nations to enrich themselves, God says you can't do that. You can't enrich yourselves through this. You can't take plunder. If you do get any money somehow, it's only for the care of the priests and for distribution to the poor in your land. And second, unlike other nations who would capture kings, mutilate them, hold them for a ransom or to show them off as trophies for their power, God says you cannot do this. And third, unlike other nations who would come in, conquer, and levy taxes, God says you can never do that. There will be, therefore, no personal trophies, no personal enrichment, no colonialism at all. And by the way, there's no double standard here for Israel ever. God judges them for their evil and wicked practices when they fall back into that. And one day when they forsake him utterly to get their attention, he allows the same thing to happen to them. He treats all nations the same. Why? Here it is. Because God, the God of the Bible is a God of justice and he is dealing with idolatry. 
He cares, hear me, about the things in the human heart that wreck and break the world. He knows idolatry. That's the word. Breaks the world. The world. Think about it. What, come on. What's racism? It's idolatry of skin color. It breaks cultures. What's pornography? It's idolatry of the sexual image. It breaks marriages and homes and lives and souls. What's on the unlimited? Pollution of the environment in the name of unfettered business advancement. It's idolatry of money. It's called mammon. It breaks the planet. See, God cares about the things that break the world. So if you only see this right here as imperialism and genocide, you missed the point. And to prove to you now, this is utterly different, totally different. You got to see what happens to the leader. He's the representative of all the people, Joshua. He's the general uh, of Israel. And he goes out, here's the story now, on the eve of battle. He goes out the night before he's going to fight against Jericho. And as he's out there, he's going to meet someone mysteriously. Now remember, remember, God's mission is to do what? Mend a broken universe. What's breaking the people here? idolatry. So what's he about to do with Joshua? Oh, we're going to see. He's about to deal with Joshua's idolatry. Verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. You're like, who is this who's out wandering in the desert with a sword in his hand? Well, you see this mysterious person appear from time to time throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Here he's called the commander of the Lord. More often he's called simply the angel of the Lord. And there are three things that are always consistent about this person. Number one, he speaks not just for God, but he speaks as God. He doesn't say, thus saith the Lord. He says, I say Second, he is always touchable. He appears as human. And third, he receives human worship. And you can see all of that happen here. It says, then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence. This is a sign of worship. And unlike other places where angels, this happens to them, but they say, no, 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 on your feet. I'm just a created being like you. Don't worship me. Worship the one true God. This angel receives it. And then he says, Joshua, take off your sandals. Why? For the place where you are standing is holy. Come on. Angels can't make ground holy. Only God can make ground holy. Who speaks as God, looks human, and receives worship? Oh, come on, you know. Who said all the stories are about me? Who said all the scriptures are about me? Listen, this is an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. It's called the theophany. So what's he doing? Here it is. He is dealing with Joshua's idolatry before he allows Joshua to deal with anyone else's. Look at this. Joshua gives the stranger two choices. He says, I mean, imagine the nerve. Are you for me? You for them. Are you for us and our side or are you for that side? Now, well, let's just pause and acknowledge, isn't that how our country works right now. Isn't that how the, the
the Twitter sphere works right now? Isn't this what American politics has become? Isn't this what the, come on, the comment section in every news article online boils down to? Are you for them? Are you for us? This is a picture of the human heart. We want to know. Are you on our side? God, are you made in our image? Are you just like us or are you for them, right? We want to know, are you a Republican or a Democrat? Are you for us on this issue or are you for them on that issue? Because if you're not for us, you're against us. Listen, our world is marked by this same idolatry of heart, filled by this. Our world is broken by this. And look what Jesus says. When he's asked, are you for them? Or are you for us? He literally says, no. He says, no. It comes up as neither in the translation, but literally it's just the word no. It's almost laughable. It's like if one of my, uh, my children, my, my 12-year-old, comes up to me, uh, say, for Christmas, and he says, Dad, for Christmas this year, are you going to get me either, let's say, a Ferrari or a trip to the moon? What would I do? I'd be like... No. No, right? That's what Jesus is doing here. When, when Joshua gives him option A or B, Jesus says, mm, I think I'll make up my own option. How would you like option C, Joshua? Because he's saying the question isn't am I on your side or their side. The question is, Joshua, is anyone on my side. Is anyone on my side? He's saying to him, Joshua, you're about to go down into battle now. This isn't about you. This isn't about your power or position. This isn't even about your nation in a way. This isn't about revenge or bloodlust or plunder. He's saying this is about my plan to mend the world, to bring justice into the world. This is about my plan to end evil in the world. And I'm starting with you, Joshua, and the evil that's in your heart that wants to make everything about you. And by the way, Joshua, Think real hard about what you're answering here because do you see the sword in my hand? The sword of justice. Just because I've called you my people doesn't mean it doesn't apply to you as well. He's saying, I'm on no one's side. The question is, is anyone on my side? He's saying, how you like me now, Joshua? You think I'm like an idol you can control? I'm like nothing the world has ever seen or known. So... What does this mean? What does this mean for us today? Let me apply this briefly in three ways, and I'll finish and hand it over to Carrie. First, let's apply this to you and me and our lives and hearts. This shows you the God of the Bible, the one true God, he's not some tribal deity that you order, say, a latte from right? He's not your barista. We're so glad for all you baristas out here, man. Thank you so much for what you do. This is, but that's not who God is. You don't just drive through and say, God, like a, like a, like a, you know, extra hot, double shot, no whip, you know, low foam or whatever. And could you make it extra hot? And I'm in a hurry, please. Right? No, this shows you God is the God who does what he pleases. The question isn't, is he for us, but are we for him? Second, let's apply this to the church globally, and yes, the church of Jesus here, us locally. This shows us that God isn't just on our side because we sing some songs. We say some words, right? We hang out our shingle on 183 and say, hey, we think we ought to be important. Listen, churches get in trouble when they look to be centers that consolidate power. 
right? Yes, we want to be people of influence, salt and light and leaven and all those metaphors, but we get in trouble when we look to be people of power, not service and blessing. And we get irritated. The church gets irritated because it thinks, you know, a thousand years ago, we used to like matter more to the culture. Now we're on the periphery more. So we're going to get real irritated and we're going to condemn the culture and say, God is against you. Listen, listen, maybe just maybe the church changed the world originally, not because it was at the center of political power, but because it realized it ought to be on the side of God, his mission in the world, maybe too much power made us forget what the whole thing was, that was all about him, not about us, right? And third, let's apply this to our nation. God, this shows us, is not on America's side just because we've got him in our pledge or on our money. If I'm God, and I'm not, if I were, I would rather be in your heart than in your pocket right? I'd rather be in your soul than on your coin, right? We say, God bless America. But how many times do we ever say, America, bless God. America, bless God, honor him, love him, serve him, right? He was not necessarily on Israel's side, and he's not necessarily on our side. Now the scripture tells us he looks, what, to and fro throughout the world, the whole earth, looking to strengthen who? Those whose hearts are what? Fully his. Fully his. Why does he strengthen those hearts? Oh, it's because he knows those hearts aren't just on their side anymore. They're on his side. You say, whoo, this is tough. And it is. You say, well, what what right does Jesus have to bear the sword? Listen, listen. One day, you've got to see this. One day, he would himself go under the sword of divine justice, but not for anything he had done before the idolatry of all the people in all their hearts. One day Jesus himself would be devoted to the Lord. That's what it means here, put under the, the ban, fully destroyed to bear the sin of the whole world because he knew then in that moment what it was like to be mistreated, silenced, oppressed, abused. He knows what it's like to be weakened on the underside of power. Why? To show you, here's why, that you can trust him. To show you he'll never misuse or abuse his power toward you. And to show you that when he comes near you, that you can and you should take off your sandals. Because he has come to make your life holy. Going to make it holy. He can make your life something amazing. He can transform. If he could transform that little patch of desert in the middle of nowhere, surely he can make your life holy and amazing as well. God's got a mission to mend the world. And like Joshua comes to you and me and he asks, will you let me conquer your heart today? Carrie. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So as we move from the time of Joshua into the time of Judges, we find Israel in the promised land. And honestly, we find Israel in a bit of a pickle <laughs> again and again and again. Judges 4 opens, us, opens up by telling us that the people of Israel were doing whatever was right in their own eyes and in their own opinions. They did whatever they wanted to do, whatever they thought was right for themselves, and they disobeyed God. In fact, Judges is full of story after story of the children of Israel trying out this new freedom thing. They're now free. They're no longer enslaved. So they try it out. They become 
corrupt. They suffer because of their corruption and idolatry. Then they cry out to God. God raises up a leader or a judge to rescue them. They get rescued only to try out their free will and freedom again, to become idolatrous and corrupt again, to suffer, to cry out to God. God raises up another judge, another leader to rescue them, and they get rescued. And then it's again and again, rinse and repeat throughout Judges. The story of Deborah, however, stands out among the other stories in this book. She's the only judge who's also a prophet, which is very significant, and she's also the only female judge. Deborah succeeds as a leader in a way that the other judges simply couldn't. So here at the beginning of Judges 4, Israel has been sold into slavery in Canaan to a man named Jabin. And after being oppressed and abused for 20 years by the general of Jabin's army, his name is Sisera, Israel has cried out to God for help, and God raises up two leaders to save them. First, he raises up a judge, the name of of Deborah, and he also uses a man named Barak, who's the general of Israel's army. So we're going to take a closer look at these two heroes from Judges 4 and 5. So what do we know about Deborah? Well, we know where she was. Deborah sat under a palm tree. Doesn't that sound nice? All day. Smart woman. Um, And the people came to her for help and for judgment. She was accessible. The palm tree was the place that Deborah's talent and gifting intersected with her influence as a leader. She was faithful to show up in the place that God could use her. Well, what did Deborah do? Deborah served the people of Israel by offering them a kind of judgment called mishpat. Now, mishpat is used over 200 times in the Hebrew scriptures. It indicates a kind of justice that's fairness in punishment, but also fairness in reward. Mishpat means justice, but it's fully understood as a fairness that is motivated by a deep love and care for the people involved. Any time in our lives, in our world, we face injustice, mishpat is really what our hearts cry out for from the people in power, isn't it? We want to see the wicked punished and the upright rewarded, right? We want the world to be safe and fair and good. But Deborah lived in a world where everyone was doing whatever was right in their own eyes, in their own minds, which is the Bible's way of saying there was an ethical and moral chaos around her. I mean, can you like even imagine what a place like that would be like where everyone's only doing whatever seems best for themselves without thought or concern for the ramifications and consequences of the community as a whole? Can we try to conjure up a picture (laughs) of this? I mean, I don't know. Let's consider Facebook during an election. Mishpat is hard to find on social media. Or maybe, perhaps, one of our teachers from the two-year-old class in MKids could tell us what it's like when you have 15 two-year-olds in one room and everyone is only doing what is right in their own eyes. (laughs) It's the land of mine and no, right? And those children, those sweet little two-year-olds, need a leader to arise and offer Mishpat to them. Right? By doling out snacks to the hungry. (laughs) Making sure each child has a toy in their hand, something to do. And that no one is throwing wooden blocks at anyone else's heads. (laughs) Mishpat is justice. And that's what Deborah did for Israel. 
But the glaring question we need to ask is how did a woman achieve this, this level of leadership in a patriarchal society where women were known as second-class citizens? How did Deborah get there? I have no idea. <laughs> like, I'm serious, the Bible doesn't tell you. Um, <laughs> over the years, I've heard well-meaning Christians, we'll just call them well-meaning, say that Deborah <laughs> achieved this because she was a fluke, right? Like, just way better than any other woman could ever be. Um, because she was an exception to the rule, or because the men of her time were unable to run the plays, and so the coach put in the third string backup. None of that is in the Bible. None of it is. There's no ancient asterisk after Deborah's name or like a footnote in the KJV that lets us in on how she got to that place. I just promise you it's not there. God felt when he inspired the word of God that it was enough to tell Deborah's story and let her record stand for itself. May the same be said of us someday. And so we see Deborah under her palm tree leading the people as a judge and a prophet. Then one day she summons Barak, right? And she, the general of Israel's army comes when the leader of his nation summons him. And Deborah tells him, she says, God has commanded you to go and fight Sisera. Now, this is no small feat. Sisera had chariots of iron, which to us doesn't sound like a big deal. But at that time, you're talking about like a bomb and a tank and a death machine all rolled into one. It's essentially a nuclear weapon. And Deborah's saying, just get 10,000 guys and like beat a nuclear weapon, right? So Barak is amazingly like totally cool with this idea. He's like, okay, yeah, great. Except I'm, I'd like you to go with me, Deborah. I'm only going to go if you come with me. After which Deborah prophesies, and she says, the path that you're on is going to lead not to your, you getting the credit, but a woman will get the credit for this. And Barak is cool with that. He's actually fine with that. He's just happy Deborah's going with him. Now, if you've ever heard Barak criticized as a man of fear or a man who lacks courage, please allow me a quick minute to refute that idea. <laughs> I want to tell you about Barak. This is what we know about him. First of all, Hebrews 11. Barak is named in Hebrews 11 as one of the greatest people of faith in the history of the world. Now, there are no other stories about Barak. It's not like he redeems himself from some, you know, thing in this story somewhere else. This is all we know of Barak's life is Judges 4 and 5. So we have to assume that he attained this status, Hebrews 11 status, by the actions he took in this story. And so apparently, God doesn't consider it a negative thing for a, a leader to ask the greatest leader of his time to throw her strengths in with his in order to do something he knows he can't do alone. In God's book, that is greatness. Secondly, we know that Barak had 10,000 soldiers fighting an unbeatable army with him. All right, I 
cannot rally my four kids to like fight the dirty laundry in my house, which is an unbeatable army. (laughs) But Barak finds 10,000 people who will fight an oppressor, like a tyrant with him and possibly destined to lose this battle. He's clearly a boss. And thirdly, we know that Barak was a selfless leader. Now, I just want to be honest. If you tell me that it's a negative consequence or punishment for Barak to lose the glory that he could have gotten and for it to go to a woman because he takes a woman with him, I find that very offensive as a woman. It's very dishonoring. Um, I mean, can you even imagine a less biblical message than this one? Hey, men of the world, God's asked you to do really hard, impossible things. But listen, you are going to have to do all those things totally on your own. Like, no help if you expect to get the glory. So, you know, man up. Just try to fit that in the gospel, and then let's talk about it. (laughs) Doesn't work. In addition to all of this, if we consider selfless service and servant leadership as characteristics of great leaders, why would we criticize Barak for this, for being an example in how to live that? Barak is clearly a man submitted to God. He's a man submitted to the highest leader of his nation. And he's a man who's willing to sacrifice himself for the good of his people. I mean, Barak is saying, basically, I'd rather have Deborah with me fighting then try to be on the battlefield alone and get slaughtered just because I want to be the goat. I don't know about you, but when God asks me to do something impossible, I hope I have the faith of Barak. So Barak and Deborah go to battle, and Deborah prophesies. She tells him exactly when he needs to ride into battle. And Bear goes when Deborah tells him to go. And just then, God sends this massive rain, and it creates all this mud and muck, and those chariots, those death machines, they're rendered useless, and they're going to be okay. Barak and his men take out every one of their enemies except one. Sisera, the general, gets away. At this point, the original audience of this story would be like hissing and groaning because the bad guy, the worst guy, the one trafficking women and killing people and taking their children, he's the one who got away. They'd be so upset. But we see Sisera go to the tent of a man named Heber, and he finds his wife, Jael, there. And so Jael, you know, Sisera thinks that she's an ally. He trusts her. He asks her to cover for him. And Jael offers him a little milk and lets him lie down and take a rest. And she pulls a little blanket up over him, tucks him in. And then while he's asleep, she, being a nomadic woman who sets up the tent for her family, Jael grabs a hammer and a tent peg. She drives it through Sisera's head, out the other side, and into the ground. She's a very strong woman. (laughs) And Jael ends up getting the credit for ending the tyranny of evil Sisera. Now, because of this victory, Israel was at peace for 40 years. That's 40 years of unity, 40 years of rest, 40 years of hope. That's a long time, right? All because a man and a woman were willing to lead together, submitted to one another's weaknesses and strengths, and trust God. Okay, so let's recap our heroes. We have Deborah. (laughs) 
We have Barrick. And we have JL. But in Judges 5, one more hero is named, and we find out that really and truly, this victory is not Barrick's or Deborah's or JL's, but this victory belongs to God. Listen, God is asking you to fight today, but he's not asking you to fight alone. None of us can do this thing on our own. And as important as community and relationships are, it's not only who's beside us that assures us of the victory, but it's the one who went, uh, went before us that gives us the victory. Morgan asked us to check our hearts and see if we're on God's side. God is always on the side of Mishpat. He's just and merciful, a rewarder of those who seek him, and a liberator of those of us who are oppressed and in bondage. His judgment offers us freedom. Jesus took the mishpat we deserved, the punishment for breaking God's law. He took our mishpat, and he gave us his mishpat. He made us child, children of God, holy, beloved. So are you on Jesus' side? And who is fighting with you? Who is your Deborah? Who's your Barak? Who's your JL? Here at Mosaic, we want to see the impossible happen. We want to live submitted to one another in love and unity and faith. We want to export the power of this community, the amazing thing of what it means to love one another out into the world and show how men and women and people of different backgrounds, ethnic, ethnicities and races and socioeconomic places and seasons, how we can all come together and offer this city, Mishpat, the kind of justice that says God cares about them, cares about what happens to them, and wants to set them free. Amen?